0: Here's what we've been doing. We talked about the nature of the Bible, where we got it, how the books of the Bible uh, were assembled, and um, how they came together. And then we talked about, we started on four characteristics of Scripture, and the first one was the authority of Scripture. And then under authority, I've been, the last two or three sessions, I've been working on these challenges to authority with respect to the particular topic of the inerrancy of the Bible. And last time we talked about some hard texts that people have brought up challenges to inerrancy. I want to bring up two more of those today, and then I'm going to mention a recent book by an Episcopalian bishop talking about the evils of the Bible, according to him. And then the last thing is the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which was put together in 1978 and kind of defined and defended inerrancy in a a decisive way. It's been historically very significant. So we've got a lot to do this morning. We go on now with the inerrancy of Scripture. Let's see. There we go. Some additional hard text for inerrancy. I wonder about that font. Bob and Georgianne and Steve and Wanda, Todd, way back there, can you read that? Yeah, all right. You're not going to admit if you couldn't. <laughs> you can. Okay, it's a good screen. All right. Um, what about the death of Judas? Here's one more challenge that comes up sometimes. Um, When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. That's in Matthew. But we go over to Acts. And here's Peter speaking, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a that is, field of blood. Well, which is it? How did Judas die? And who bought the field? Maybe it was just uh, the second part of the hanging. He hung himself. Kay. Okay. Okay. Mar- okay. Mark's saying, could he have hung himself and then you know, sometime later the rope broke and he fell and his body, which had started to decompose, burst open. What? And I think that's very likely what happened. And what we're doing here is you can approach this with a hostile or critical uh, or skeptical mindset and say, there's no way this can be reconciled. Or you can approach it by saying, I wonder if it's possible for both things to be true. Remember, When these things were written, many people were alive who still remembered all these events. And there had to be some way in which they thought, yeah, that makes sense. Both of those things were true. And uh, I think it's very possible that uh, we're saying these are not contradictory, but they're complementary, describing different aspects of the same event. You all right with that? that? Okay. But who bought the field? Did Judas buy it, or did the priests buy it for him? Well, he threw the coins down. He brought the 30 pieces back of silver back to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Yeah. He was the treasurer of the disciples, Gunther. Yeah, he could have taken some for himself. Let me see. And... Uh, now, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, though. So, yeah. yeah, that could have been. Okay, I hadn't thought of that, but I have to say that's possible. Maybe maybe this was his other stealing that he had acquired it with. Yeah, that's possible. There's another possibility, too. Yeah, I don't know your name. Phil. Phil? Matthew 7 today. Matthew 27. They said, what is that to us? It's the high priests or the chief priests. So that's the Jewish. And they together, and the money bought the field. So it the who bought the field? Yes. Uh, let me see. where. Um, maybe I didn't get the whole passage here. I think they bought it. I think they did buy it. But the question is, what is going on here with he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness? Could that be consistent with the high priest's? or the priest, rather, um, using his money to buy it. Does that be all right? If you give money to a real estate agent, the agent buys it for you, is the same as you buying a property? I I think so. And so I think think that Gunther's suggestion is possible, but I think probably what happened is that they didn't want to use the money which they felt was tainted too, so they used it to acquire in his Mm -hmm. name this field um, uh, where he had hanged himself, and um, it became a kind of source of ill ill reputation for him. Um, Well, that's just another example of one of the kind of puzzling texts that people have brought up. I just want to be honest with you and say, here it is. It doesn't seem to me to be impossible to reconcile and say that both both accounts are true, but they're complementary. All right? Try one more. The cursing of the fig tree. This is a really tough one. Palm Sunday. I put Palm Sunday here in the green uh, because that's the previous verses where Jesus comes in riding on a donkey and people say, Hosanna to the king of the the Jews, etc. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Now, I just put dot, dot, dot here because in the rest of verse 10 and verse 11, there's a little more narrative, but I was trying to fit it on the one screen here. Uh, But it was uh, uh, kind of what happened when Jesus came in and all the people were cheering him. And now Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Now, 18, I put Monday here because... um, Because it says in the morning as he was returning to the city, well, he had gone to the city before, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? So it looks like it looks like when you read this, if you're just reading Matthew, it looks like on Sunday Jesus entered Jerusalem and cleansed the temple. On Monday he cursed the fig tree, and the disciples commented on it, how the fig tree withered at once. All right. And when I was uh, again in my doctoral work, the librarian, R. T. France, the librarian at Tyndall House in Cambridge, England, said, you know, this is really. He he just he. He just didn't know quite how to reconcile this. He has a commentary on Matthew's gospel, in fact, and he thought the immediately the, the, the fig tree withered at once, and that puts this all in one seg- sequence of events. And that isn't a problem until you go over to Mark and know what's happening. Palm Sunday. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. But now, instead of cleansing the temple, what happens? When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Then on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And Margaret and I, a long time ago, walked that road from Jerusalem to Bethany and then back. I don't know if you remember that with Palmer Robertson. We took a walk when we were on a Jerusalem on an Israel study tour. It was 1972. Um, and uh, it's, a, I don't know, an hour walk or something, maybe a 45-minute walk. I, I can't remember. It's a long time ago. But, it, but it, it, uh, it's a, a walking distance away where he was staying. Okay, Monday on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, <clears throat> he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out all those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Uh Uh-oh, what day is this? Monday. Oh, but I thought Matthew had it on Sunday. Hmm. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Then Tuesday, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Uh Uh-oh. I thought they saw it on Monday in Matthew. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. So here's the sequence. Sunday, he enters Jerusalem and looks around, but he doesn't do anything. Monday, he comes back and curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. Tuesday morning, the disciples see the fig tree and comment on it. Now, that, that sequence is, uh, is seems different from Matthew. I'll get Matthew up there again. See, here's Palm Sunday, enters the temple. Monday, curses the fig tree, and the disciples comment on it. Sunday, enter Jerusalem, cleanse the temple. Here's Sunday, enter Jerusalem, and look around. Monday, curse the fig tree, and the disciples comment. Monday, curse the fig tree, and cleanse the temple. Tuesday, the disciples comment. I don't know if it's... Can you process... I'll just let you think about that for a minute now. Uh-huh. So maybe they weren't there Monday, and they walked by Tuesday, and that was the first time. Okay. What's your name? Janet. Janet. Okay, Janet's saying maybe the disciples weren't with him here on uh Monday as he was returning to the city. Um, well, here's in the morning. Okay. So, um, What Janet is doing, I'd have to get what I've, I compressed it, I didn't get all the verses. I think the disciples are with him. But what I like about what you're doing, Janet, is you're kind of thinking, let me look at this, let me look at this again and see if it really says what I thought. And that's how I think we solve these problems, by looking closely at the text. And when this uh, librarian at the research library in England, Cambridge, uh, said to me, you know, this is a really hard problem to reconcile, I thought, I can't figure it out at first. But I went back and started looking at it in detail, just what you're doing. What else, Sandy? Well, the other thing is, what precludes it staying. Okay. It's possible they commented on Monday and then later commented on it again. You're saying, okay. Now, how did the fig tree wither at once? That's a possibility. Anything else? What about their memory? Sometimes have problems. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, you mean you're recording it in Matthew? Maybe they're getting the days mixed up. But but the the problem there is, Rose, that I don't want to say that what Matthew recorded ended up being wrong. So I want to say that it's truthful. Now let me just suggest to you, yeah, yeah, John. It says when the disciples saw. Yep. That doesn't have to be Monday. Okay, John. Okay, John. You're on to the thing that really got me to figure this out. I think. It says when the disciples saw it. It doesn't say that's the same day, okay? That could have been Tuesday, okay? And in fact, when we were translating the English Standard Version, we started a new paragraph here at verse 20, just to give people a hint that that's probably what happened, that they saw it on Tuesday. But but Matthew, once he starts talking about the road from Bethany and the fig tree, he finishes the story. Even though this is Monday, he curses it. And what I think happened is Jesus says, may no fruit ever come from you again. Now, did they stand around watching? No, they were on their way to Jerusalem. He curses it, and they walk on. And I don't think they knew that it withered. And I think when it withered at once, and I, and then I started thinking, how long did that take? And the Greek word parakrema, there are some things that They're at once, but they take a little process. Like um, when Jesus healed healed Peter's mother-in-law, same word. She got up at once and served them. Now, did she stretch for a minute and kind of go like, yeah, I suppose, but she kind of normally got. And so when the fig tree withered, I think that the sap drained out of it, but that probably took five, ten, fifteen minutes. I don't know. It just started. And by that time, they'd already been into Jerusalem. And so I think this is Tuesday right here when the disciples saw. I don't think they saw it till Tuesday. So uh, my initial impression of Matthew, I didn't recognize that Matthew is treating the topic and finishing the topic here. And that helped me with one thing. Now, what else? Yes, um, uh, Keith. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, this is a clue that's helpful, but it might lead us down the wrong path. Mark is often organized thematically rather than chronologically. But in this case, I'm wondering which one it is that's organized thematically. Um, That is, sometimes it's true in Matthew as well. And here, I think we've got Matthew talking about the fig tree and he finishes the story even though it's two different days. Could it be that here, he gets Jesus into Jerusalem and he continues to tell you about Jerusalem even though this is Monday. Could that be? See, and then and then what you'd have is this. Matthew, or and so I think this is the solution. Matthew has organized this by location, not by day. So first, the location is Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. Monday, but Matthew doesn't tell you this is Monday. He just says, and. He doesn't say the same day or that day or immediately or anything. He just says, and Jesus entered the temple. So there's something else that Jesus did in Jerusalem. He entered the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple. And then he went out of the city to Bethany. Now, Matthew's going to tell you the story about what happened at the fig tree and the road to Bethany. Road from Bethany, in the morning as he was returning to this fig city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree, he went to it. May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. New paragraph, Tuesday, when the disciples saw it, and that happens to be the next day, but Matthew doesn't mention that it's the next day. They marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Now what we have in Matthew is, Sunday he enters Jerusalem, Monday, but he doesn't specify the day, Jesus curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. But see, they're, they're, organ, they're not separated by day. But Tuesday, but he doesn't specify it, the disciples see the fig tree and comment on it. That's the same as Mark. Sunday, enter Jerusalem and look around, which Matthew doesn't mention. Monday, curses the fig tree and cleanses the temple. Tuesday, the disciples see the fig tree and comment on it. And when I got to that point, I thought, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's what happened. It was just a topical arrangement in Matthew. <laughs> what do you think, Kev? You're looking like, mm, is that really right? It's not an easy, it's not an easy problem. But I, now tell me, here's your choice: either this works or God lied. <laughs> now, which one do you want? That, see, that's the choice I'm faced with. I. I really think honestly, as I'm looking at the passage, that this is very possible, that Matthew is not specifying that it all happened on the same day. He says, here's what happened. Jesus came to Jerusalem and he cleansed the temple. He's just telling about some stuff that happened in Jerusalem that week. And then he says, now uh, in the morning when Jesus was returning to the city, but he doesn't tell which of the days because he was going in and out of the city, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, but in the morning as he was returning to the city, saw a fig tree and cursed it. And you know, when the disciples saw that, they said, how did it wither at once? And Jesus goes on and says, if you have faith, like a grain of mustard seed and, and say this mountain be removed. So he teaches them on faith. I'm happy with that. I think it's a, it's a decent solution, but I told you I wasn't going to run away from the hard passages. The one about take sandals, don't take sandals, take a staff, don't take a staff. And this one with the cursing of the fig tree, they're about the hardest ones in the gospels. Ed, It's an opportunity for faith. faith. Yeah, yeah, it is. he does go on to talk about faith, and it is. I see. I really think we're in this situation where you say, "Hmm, yeah, that's possible." Do I, am I really going to believe that that's true? But then I come up against um, every word of God proves true. Is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. The words of the Lord are words that are pure, silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Um, God is not a man that he should lie. It is impossible that God should lie. Uh, God who never lies. All those passages that we talked about before, if these are God's words, they're truthful. And, And I have to work at it a little bit to see if there's a possible way that these are both true. But I think, honestly, well, one thing that happened was God just... Worked with the individual authors and used their own personalities and their own, um, you know, way of recording things and remembering things. I think also these are the Bible never asks us to believe a contradiction. The Bible never asks us to say to believe that Jesus cursed the no. It never asks us to believe that Jesus cleansed the temple on Sunday and he didn't cleanse the temple on Sunday. That's a contradiction. You can't believe that. Okay. But it does sometimes ask us to believe things where you say, okay, I can see that that's a possibility. Um, and I guess I'm gonna believe it because it's God's word. It's, it's, it's approaching it with not a hostile or critical attitude, but with the eyes of, of faith and saying, yeah, it's God's word and I'll, I'll, I'll trust him. We do that with people that we trust. When sometimes they say to us one thing and then another and say, I can't figure out how both those are true, but let me give them the benefit of the doubt until I get a chance to ask them, okay? Any other questions there? Yep, Pammy. Yeah, I think I went back and told him. par crema doesn't mean um, it, uh, doesn't mean doesn't mean in a millisecond. It could take place over a minute or five minutes or ten minutes, and so that could be Tuesday. And he said, "Well, I don't remember." It, I mean, this is 25 years ago, so or more. Um, but how long did it take me to figure that out? Um, hour or two, maybe, just looking at him. Yeah, I do think probably with the fig tree and uh, he's coming in Jerusalem to meet these Jewish leaders who aren't bearing fruit and there's a a relationship. Yeah, he's acting in the natural world. What is going to happen in the spiritual world uh, in just a few minutes? I think so. Good. Way to go, Jack. (laughs) And Pammy. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to um, I'm going to go on to one other kind of challenge of Scripture. I just uh, I was uh, driving and listening to Dennis Prager, and he had on this Bishop John Shelby Spong, who's got a book called The Sins of Scripture. Um, so, uh, John Shelby Spong, The Sins of Scripture: Exposing the Bible's Texts of Hate to Reveal the God of Love, newly published by HarperCollins. Spong is a retired bishop, Episcopalian bishop of Newark, New Jersey. So I thought, well, let me have a look at this book and see why he thinks the Bible is evil in so many places. And um, this is a different kind of challenge to the inerrancy of the Bible or the authority of the Bible. It's what I would call a challenge that comes in the form of scoffing or mockery. He says the Bible is not always good. Sometimes the Bible is quite overtly, overtly evil. Sometimes its texts are terrible. And um, I'm going to, for sake of time, I'm going to just skip over this. Oh, here's one. The execution squads, if we're going to believe the Bible and obey it, the execution squads would have to work overtime to keep up with the number of texts in the Bible that call for the death penalty. Violating the Sabbath, cursing, and blaspheming are among them. Such judgments would fall most heavily on athletic locker rooms used in preparation for Saturday or Sunday football games. But of course, no one should be playing football anyway, for Leviticus also prohibits touching anything made of pigskin. skin. And I looked at that Leviticus passage that he quoted, and the pig, because it parts the hoof and chews, and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. But you shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So I thought, all right, he's not misquoting it. It does say, don't eat pigs and don't touch their carcasses. Hmm, now what are we going to do about that? Um, and then uh, look at what this bishop just retired, in the Episcopal Church, says about the stories of Jesus. When we come to the Jesus stories, a literal rendering or reading will reveal either unbelievable miracles or a land of make-believe. Like all great mythical heroes, Jesus was said to have had a supernatural birth. He was conceived without benefit of a male agent. The fetus of John the Baptist, while still in the womb, leaped to salute the fetus of Jesus. Surely no one would seriously argue that this story was literal history? Surely not. Surely you wouldn't think that, would you? Oh, surely not. The star was said to have had the power to wander through the sky so slowly that it could guide the wise men from the east, first to the palace of Herod and second to a house in Bethlehem where Jesus could be found. Impossible. How could a star go that slowly? You wouldn't. Surely you can't believe that. In fact, next, Luke tells us on the night of his birth, angels split the night sky behind which they were presumed to live, angels living behind the sky. Of course, that's an ancient view of the cosmos, which we wouldn't believe today. We know we can launch spaceships into the sky, and there aren't any angels there. In order to sing to hillside shepherds, the angels must have sung in Aramaic, for that was the only language the shepherds understood. Can you imagine shepherds speaking Aramaic? This common language of ordinary people? No, come on. So the virgin birth was placed into the church creeds along with the cosmic ascension. That's Jesus ascending up into heaven after his resurrection. Though I know of no reputable biblical scholar in the world today who thinks that either ever happened in a literal way, nor do scholars today believe that prophets predicted things that Jesus actually did. Surely you don't think that, do you? <laughs> Laurie, you wouldn't think that, would you? Surely no reputable scholar would believe any of these things. Hmm <laughs> Hmm. Well, I, I call this um, argument by mocking or scoffing. Uh, so my, my response to Bishop Spong would be, Number one, this is not reasoned argument but rather rhetorical bluffing that takes the form, surely you can't believe that, as an Episcopalian bishop would say. Um, He assumes his position. He does not argue for it. Now, let me just put a little parenthesis here. Um, There are many wonderful godly Episcopalians in the world who would strongly differ with Bishop Spong, including J.I. Packer, for instance, and Gordon Wenham, and Bruce Winter, all three of whom were on the translation committee for the ESV with me, uh, including John Yates, a friend of mine that I just had dinner with a month ago. He's, uh, he's the uh, rector of uh, the Falls Church in Falls Church, Virginia, solid Bible-believing pastor. And you could have him preach here on a Sunday morning, and you'd love him as a preacher. So there are conservatives and liberals within the Episcopal Church. But among the conservatives and liberals, Spong is way far to the left of all the liberals. Um, so he's kind of a renegade bishop. But here we are. Surely you can't believe that. This is reasoned, this is not reasoned argument. It's bluffing. It assumes his position. It does not argue for it. Number two, if we took his claims one at a time, there are reasonable, thoughtful explanations for all of the matters he raises. But either he has never read them, which is irresponsible, or he fails to inform his readers of them, which is dishonest. And there are thousands of, quote, reputable biblical scholars who believe these things to be true. I really do mean thousands. In the United States, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to Philadelphia, we'll have, we'll have probably 2,000 people at the meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. Now, some will be students and some will be pastors, but many of them are full members who are professors of Bible or theology, at Christian uh, seminaries and colleges throughout the United States. They have earned PhDs from all the major universities in the world and they all believe that the Bible is is inerrant in the way that I'm teaching you this morning. And they've published with all the major presses. There are thousands of reputable biblical scholars, same thing in England with the Tyndall Fellowship, who believe these things to be true. For example, no responsible Christian argues that we should enforce the death penalties in the Mosaic Law Code today. Those death penalties were for a specific purpose at a specific time in history. Um, and I talked about those a number of week- oh, months ago where we talked about ethics and how to understand them. And few argue that we should follow the Old Testament laws about unclean animals and food today. I thought no one argued that today. And then I came across this book, The Baker's Diet or something. And so somebody's brought it back. But uh, very few would argue that, at least not on theological grounds. So to try to enforce that is to try to, it's caricature. It's, it's, a, it's a distorted view. It's, it's arguing on the basis of a position that people who believe the Bible don't hold. Yes, I do believe all the stories of the miracles of the Bible. I believe they happened exactly as they were written. I hadn't thought about what language the angels sang, but either it was Aramaic, so the shepherds could understand, or it was something else, and God gave them miraculous ability to understand, but they understood it, yes, and they appeared right out of the sky. What is unscholarly about that? believe that they're exactly as they're written. Can you give any proof that they didn't happen in just that way? I could say back to him, surely you don't doubt that these things happened, do you? Surely not. Um, That's just argument by assertion. There are other books like Spong's and there are good answers to all of them and they really aren't all that impressive in the end. Um, When I read it, uh, read through it, some of it yesterday, I was surprised at how little argument or evidence there was. Uh, I have, when I teach this class at uh, the seminary, I have students read People of the Book by John Barton. He's an Oxford Old Testament professor, and he's arguing against fundamentalists, that's his name for us, and, uh, and their view of the Bible. But after students have been through some original documents and some data that we've gone through about the nature of the canon and the views of the Bible of the Bible from the Jewish people and the, and the New Testament church, and then they read Barton's book, they're surprised that there isn't more argument to it than that for an Oxford professor of Old Testament. It's just, again, a lot of broad-based assertions. But I want them to read it to say, hey, you know what? You can answer this. So, conclusion. The Bible is inerrant. This is conclusion after about three weeks of looking at this. that The meaning is the Bible in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Again, I want to affirm what the Bible says about itself. The sum of your words is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Every word, every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. And 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's all God's words. And so um, I want to end at this section out of the Inerrancy by saying you can trust it. You can trust it, and you don't have to run away from the hardest challenges that anybody in the world can bring up about it. There are answers to those, and it's, it's trustworthy. <laughs> Questions on that? Yep, um, Ben. Yep. People of the book is John Barton. Barton. And and you can read that. It's um, Westminster John Knox Press. and uh, But he's just, I think, got some incorrect statements about the Jewish people and their view of the Bible um, during uh, the time of the Old Testament and then during the time of the first century. So what's your name? Beth? Like what? Yeah. I'll tell you what, Beth, I'm going to... I, what about the Roman Catholics who have other books between the Old and New Testament? And There's a tape here from about two months ago when I talked about the canon of the Old Testament, and there's an outline, so if you could pick that up. and I I know that people are always coming into the class, new or missed a session. So um, Short answer on those books of the Apocrypha, the Jewish people themselves didn't take them as Scripture, but as history. Jesus didn't ever quote them as Scripture. The Apostles didn't ever quote them as Scripture. And the Roman Catholic Church didn't take it as scripture till 16, no, till 1547, when they were responding to Martin Luther. So it was really late. Um, okay, good. Okay, now what I want to do is one more thing here. Uh, in the last eight minutes, this controversy over inerrancy. Went on for a number of years until finally, in 1978, some people convened something called the Chicago uh, Conference on Biblical Inerrancy. There were about 260 people there. I was a second-year college teacher at Bethel College in St. Paul, and I got myself an invitation to go to this. It, and uh, this is different professors and denominational leaders and um, uh, and pastors got together but it was everybody who agreed already in inerrancy, and they were going to define by by a statement what was meant by it. There's the Chicago, uh, the Hyatt Regency O'Hare, and Margaret and I were there. Here's, uh, I'm going to skip over it, I've handed it out to you, but I'm just going to mention a couple of, or a few of the statements in it. This is people who believe in it, kind of defining it more clearly. We affirm that the Holy Scriptures are to be received as the authoritative Word of God. We deny the Scriptures receive their authority from the church, tradition, or any other human source that is differing with what view? Roman Catholic view, differing uh, respectfully, but differing. Article 2, we affirm that the scriptures are the supreme written norm by which God binds the conscience, and that the authority of the church is subordinate to that of scripture. We deny that church creeds, councils, or declarations have authority greater than or equal to the authority of the Bible. Again, that is differing, just in broad brush, with Again, the Roman Catholic view that would put the teaching authority of the church on a par with Scripture. Number three, we affirm that the written word of God in its entirety is revelation given by God. We deny that the Bible is merely a witness to revelation. So that's a liberal view. David encountered God and wrote down his impressions, and so it just tells about his story. So That would say that the Bible, the words aren't God's words. We deny that it only becomes revelation in encounter or depends on the responses of men for its validity. And I'm going to skip over some of this, but Article 5, we affirm that God's revelation in the Holy Scriptures was progressive. That means that the New Testament tells us more than the Old Testament. We deny that later revelation, which may fulfill earlier revelation, ever corrects or contradicts it. We further deny that any normative revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. That's saying there's nothing to be added to the Bible. Now, in the debate on the floor over this uh, document, the drafters, J.I. Packer and Edmund Clowney, were the two initial drafters of this, and it had been worked out in a number of committees over those three days. It said, we further deny that any revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings. And the one contribution that I, one or two, that I was able to make to this was, I said to Edmund Clowney, who was one of the main drafters, I said, if you say we deny that any revelation has been given since the completion of the New Testament writings, you're going to rule out all Pentecostals and Charismatics from ever signing this statement. Because they believe that God can reveal things and guide us today. I think many evangelicals believe that. So they added the word. It's kind of like I was sitting behind him and saying, you've got to add a word here. And so they added normative revelation. And I'm glad for that, because that allows that God can reveal things to us today, just that they don't become scripture. All right? <laughs> um, uh, Article 7, we affirm that inspiration was the work in which God, by his spirit, through human writers, gave us his word. The origin of scripture is divine, the mode of divine inspiration remains largely a mystery to us they're saying how it got to be god's words exactly we're not always sure we know something about it but it's largely a mystery we deny that inspiration can be reduced to human insight that's again a liberal view that says that the you know moses was inspired isaiah was inspired but not the words no it's not just human insight or heightened states of consciousness it's god supervising the entire whole circumstance and personality and events of the biblical author. Article 8, we affirm that God in his work of inspiration utilized the distinctive personalities and literary styles of the writers whom he had chosen and prepared. We deny that God, in causing these writers to use the very words that he chose, overrode their personalities. This is mystery again. How can God respect their personalities, but yet have the result be his words. Well, that's the affirmation, that this is what happened. It was, God, it still is God's very words. I've got three minutes left. I'm pushing on here, and we're going to see if we can get done. We affirm that inspiration, though not conferring omniscience, that means that Paul didn't know everything, guaranteed true and trustworthy utterance on all matters of which the Bible authors were moved to speak and write. What that's saying is that... Okay, we don't know what view Moses had of the earth, whether it was round or flat or whatever, or David or whoever. But whenever they wrote, what they wrote was truthful. So even if they had some bad ideas, they didn't get them in the Bible. So we deny that the finitude or fallenness of these writers introduced distortion or falsehood into God's words. Here's the original manuscripts. We affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies to the autographic texts of Scripture. That's the original manuscripts, which in the providence of God can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent they faithfully represent the original. We affirm that Scripture in its entirety is inerrant, being free from all falsehood, fraud or or deceit. This is Article 12. We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, redemptive, or religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the field of history and science. It says where it speaks about history and science, it's also truthful. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about Earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. There were some people who were pushing there for an affirmation that it was six 24-hour days but they didn't prevail on the majority. The majority said there's room for difference here, but whatever the Bible teaches, it's true, and science can't, and scientific theories shouldn't overturn it. We affirm the propriety of using inerrancy as a theological term with reference to the complete truthfulness of Scripture. We deny that it's proper to evaluate Scripture according to the standards of truth and error that are alien to its usage or purpose. We further deny that inerrancy is negated by biblical phenomena such as lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling. We've talked about those things. Observational descriptions of nature, and that's like talking about the sun rising or setting, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole and round numbers, the topical arrangement of material. We got that in Matthew just a minute ago. Variant selections of material and parallel accounts or the use of free citations. I'm looking at that clock, and it says 9.14. Let me see here. Um, Let's just go to the last one. Article 19. We affirm that a confession of the full authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture is vital to a sound understanding of the whole Christian faith. So it's important, and such confession should lead to increasing conformity to the image of Christ. We deny that such confession is necessary for salvation, However, we further deny that inerrancy can be rejected without grave consequences, both to the individual and the church. They're saying it's really important. Well, as soon as that was published and 263 people at the meeting signed it or something like that, it uh, it had gained widespread assent, except for those faculty members and those seminaries that didn't agree with inerrancy, and they started to argue against it. But since then... It's gained more and more acceptance, and many times in interviewing faculty members at Trinity and then here, we've asked, do you agree with the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy? And the ETS, Evangelical Theological Society, just adopted it as its official explanation of what we mean by inerrancy. So it served a good purpose by gathering widespread assent from the leaders of churches in different denominations. Well... I think it says 9:15:52 52 on my watch, so if I dismiss right now, maybe I'll give a one word of prayer and we'll get out on the time we're supposed to. Lord, we thank you for your word, we thank you for its truthfulness, thank you for um, giving scholars to, to study it and help us with it, and thank you that it stands firm, forever, firmly fixed in the heavens, and it will not fade away or ever mislead us. Thank you that we can trust it because it's from you. In Jesus' name, amen.